0: This is Democracy Now. We were definitely um, happy that they moved in the right direction by permanently dis, um, deactivating the Scorpion unit, but that means they can deactivate all of them. So the multi-level gang unit, the organized crime unit, all work under the same umbrella as the Scorpion unit, and they need to all be disbanded as well.
1: As the Memphis Police Department disbands its Scorpion unit after the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols, we'll look at the rise of the warrior cop with author Radley Balco who's documented the increasing militarization of America's police forces. Then, here in New York, a special unit designed to protect trans women at the Rikers Island Jail has fallen apart, stranding many trans women in male jails where they've been harassed and raped. Then, we'll talk about the debt ceiling.
2: The debt ceiling dispute between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy is mostly political theater, hidden behind all of it, a movement that shifts the burden of our government off of corporations and the rich onto all the rest of us. That's what should be being discussed and debated.
1: We'll speak with economist Richard Wolf about the debt ceiling, the economics of the Ukraine war and more. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with Mahmoud Abbas and other Palestinian leaders in the city of Ramallah and the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Blinken's visit comes just days after the Palestinian Authority ended its security coordination with Israel following a spate of killings by Israeli forces. In the latest violence, Israeli forces shot 26-year-old Palestinian Nassim Abu Fouda in the head Monday morning at a checkpoint in the occupied southern city of Hebron. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reports so far this year Israeli soldiers and settlers have killed 35 Palestinians, including eight children and an elderly woman. On Monday, Blinken met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem, where he reiterated U.S. support for Israel remains ironclad.
3: Throughout uh, the relationship between our countries, uh, what we come back to time and again is that it is rooted— both in shared interests and in shared values. That includes our support for core democratic principles and institutions, including respect for human rights, the equal administration of justice for all, the equal rights of minority groups, the rule of law, free press, a robust civil society,
1: Many of Blinken's remarks were drawn word for word from previous State Department statements. His meeting with Netanyahu came just days after State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel refused to describe Palestinians in the West Bank as living under Israeli military occupation. In Pakistan, the death toll from Monday's suicide bombing in the northwestern city of Peshawar rose to 95 after first responders ended their rescue and recovery operation. A local official said more than 225 people were also injured the attack, which tore through a packed mosque inside a police and government compound. Most of the dead were police officers. An offshoot of the Taliban, known as the TTP, claimed responsibility for the massacre. In Iran, human rights groups are demanding authorities throw out the convictions against three young men sentenced to death for their involvement in anti-government protests that erupted in September after the death of Masa Amini in police custody. Their cases are detailed in a new Amnesty International report, which denounces Iranian authorities for torturing the three men and denying them a fair trial. The report describes 19-year-old Mehdi Mohammadi Fard was raped and beaten so brutally by prison guards he had to be taken to the hospital. The two Two others, 18-year-old Arshia Takstan and 31-year-old Javad Ruhi, have also been subjected to horrific beatings in prison. The three were denied the right to choose their lawyers to fight the charges, and their hearings lasted less than an hour. President Joe Biden has informed Congress to lend the national emergency and public health emergency declarations over COVID-19 in mid-May and will ask the federal government to treat the coronavirus as an endemic threat. The announcement comes after lawmakers repeatedly rejected requests from the Biden administration for billions of dollars in additional aid to combat the pandemic, including funding for free COVID vaccines and testing. Last year, COVID-19 remained the third leading cause of death in the United States for the third year in a row, surpassed only by heart disease disease and cancer. On average, the disease is killing more than 3,500 people per week across the United States. In Tennessee, the Memphis Fire Department's terminated two EMTs and a fire department lieutenant over their roles in the killing of Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old African American father who was fatally beaten by police on January 7th after a traffic stop. Memphis fire officials say an internal investigation revealed the first responders quote failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Mr. Nichols unquote. Video shows the EMTs walking away from Tyree and leaving him on the ground as. He Royals in agony. Meanwhile, the Memphis Police Departments revealed a sixth and seventh officer were suspended after Tyree's killing. One of the officers, Preston Hemphill, who's white, participated in the initial traffic stop and fired his taser at Tyree. Hempill was recorded saying, quote, I hope they stomp his ass, referring to Tyree. An initial police report filed just hours after Tyree's violent arrest shows wide discrepancies between the claims of the officers and what video from the scene reveals. The video shows no evidence Tyree tried to fight the officers or reach for their guns, as the arrest report alleges. On Monday night, residents gathered to remember Tyree in a candlelight vigil at the site of his killing. Pastor Charita McCoy helped organize the protest.
3: I want peace. She spoke peace. I represent peace. I want to see that in the city of Memphis. I want to see peace in the families. They're hurting families behind this. They're hurting cities behind this. They're hurting. The nation is hurt.
1: In New Jersey, racial justice advocates and the family of Carl Dorsey, an unarmed black man who was killed by Newark police New Year's Day 2021, are calling on the U.S. attorney to launch a civil rights investigation into the case. This comes after a New Jersey grand jury last week decided not to indict Newark police detective Rod Simpkins for fatally shooting Dorsey two years ago. Simpkins was undercover and in an unmarked police minivan when he arrived at the scene after reportedly hearing gunshots within seconds of exiting his car, Officer Simpkins fired his gun at Dorsey. It's unclear if he first announced himself as a police officer. To see our coverage of this case, go to democracynow.org. In Madagascar, at least 25 people have been killed and tens of thousands displaced by a tropical cyclone that made landfall last week. The storm also decimated crops and cut off major roads. In New Zealand, Auckland residents are bracing for more downpours after record rains killed at least four people and triggered flash floods and landslides. New Zealand's new prime minister, Chris Hipkins, said Monday global heating is to blame for the extreme weather
0: climate change is real. It's with us. It's having an impact on our weather. We are seeing more of these extreme weather
4: events. We're going to have to deal with more of these extreme weather events in the near future. Um, we need to be prepared for that. Um, and we need to do everything that we can to, to combat the challenge of climate change.
1: In Mexico, relatives of two land offenders who've been missing since January 15th are demanding authorities investigate their abductions and bring them back alive. Ricardo Arturo Lagunes-Gasca, a human rights lawyer and environmentalist, and Antonio Diaz-Valencia an Aquila indigenous leader, were last seen two weeks after leaving a community meeting in the state of Michoacan against mining in the region. Witnesses said the environmentalists were followed and threatened by a group of men their vehicle later found abandoned with several bullet holes. Their family members have accused transnational mining company Ternium of complicity in the kidnappings. The steel manufacturer has faced mounting opposition from community members who say Ternium's mining operations have destroyed the environment, triggered health issues and brought violence to the region. Here in New York, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is presenting evidence to a grand jury about a $130,000 hush payment Donald Trump sent to adult film actress Stormy Daniels through an intermediary. The renewed investigation signals Trump could face criminal charges for violations of campaign finance law. In 2018, Trump's former personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison after he pleaded guilty to charges of tax evasion, bank fraud, and lying to Congress about the hush money payments. Cohen has said Donald Trump directed him to make the payments through a show company shortly before the 2016 presidential election. In France, hundreds of thousands of people marched through the streets of cities nationwide today as unions went on strike to protest a bid to slash pension benefits. President Emmanuel Macron has proposed raising the age of retirement from 62 to 64 years old and refused to back down earlier this month when more than a million people took part in a similar nationwide strike. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of workers are poised to strike across the United Kingdom Wednesday after members of the ruling Conservative Party advanced legislation that would allow the government to break strikes by ensuring workplaces maintain minimum services during work stoppages. On Monday, Labor MP Zara Sultana joined a protest against the anti-worker bill outside the prime minister's Downing Street residence.
0: The Tories know that their program is unpopular. They know
1: that workers are getting angrier. They know that the public doesn't want a government that sacrifices people and planet for profit. So they want to crush us. They want to crush dissent. They want to rob us of our rights and stop us from fighting back. And finally, in New York, dozens of asylum seekers continued a peaceful demonstration Monday outside a Manhattan hotel, where they'd been living for weeks, until city officials suddenly evicted them over the weekend to move them to a remote camp at a cruise terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. A warehouse facility has been filled with a 1,000 cots head-to-toe. Asylum seekers said there's no heat, no space for them to safely store their personal belongings. Dozens are sleeping on the sidewalk outside the Watson Hotel pleading with the city to provide permanent and humane housing as well as job permits so they can make a living. Democracy Now!'s Maria Teresena and Sanji Lopez were on the ground as police barricaded the hotel and forced several asylum seekers to board buses to be taken to the new camp. Others refused to go. This is Jimena Bustamante, mutual aid organizer and founder of the Undocumented Women's Fund.
0: Many of them have already jobs in the area, and, you know, like, uh, they they have built community around here. And actually, they cannot be forced, because there is, in New York, a right to shelter. However, um, you know, there have been police called here to intimidate them, and they have stood their ground. They are camping outside.
1: Mutual aid organizers have rallied in solidarity with the asylum seekers and have vowed to fight the evictions. This is Yahaira Saavedra, co-founder of La Morada Mutual Aid Kitchen.
0: The police is obviously used to intimidate us. Uh, they wanted to conduct a sweep here, but we have a lot of mutual aid, a lot of uh, people in solidarity who stop the sweeps.
1: Ivan, an asylum seeker from Venezuela, said he was assaulted Sunday night by a security guard working at the Watson Hotel.
5: I
6: was filming the men who were being loaded onto buses. Several of us were filming them. When a security guard, a staff member from the Watson Hotel assaulted me, he tried to take my cell phone. When I tried to move it away from him, he punched me back here. He punched me really hard.
1: Meanwhile, another group of asylum seekers shared an exclusive video recording with Democracy Now! of a Watson Hotel staff member telling them the city's not giving them other options and that the hotel had to be emptied out to carry out construction. The city is not giving you any more options. They want everything here to be emptied out because they have to demolish everything. They're bringing construction crews. New York officials are reportedly planning to use the hotel to house asylum-seeking families with children. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org. The War and Peace Report. When we come back, or well, we'll go right into the story of um, the first story we bring you today. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan.
3: Hi, Amy. Welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
1: Well, we're going to Tennessee fallout from the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols continues to grow. The Memphis Fire Department has terminated two EMTs and a fire department lieutenant over the roles in the incident. The police department has also placed two more officers on administrative leave. Five Memphis police officers had already been fired and faced murder and kidnapping charges. The five officers were all members of a special unit known as SCORPION, which stands for Street Crimes Operation to Restore peace in our neighborhoods. On Saturday, Memphis disbanded the Scorpion unit, a day after the city released the shocking police body cam footage of officers beating Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop. Activists welcomed the decision to shut down the Scorpion unit, but said much more is needed. This is Amber Sherman of the Memphis chapter of Black Lives Matter.
0: We were definitely um, happy that they moved in the right direction by permanently dis, um, deactivating the Scorpion unit, but that means they can deactivate all of them. So the multi-level gang unit, the organized crime unit, all work under the same umbrella as the Scorpion unit, and they need to all be disbanded as well. Because just by ending that unit, that's a good move. But then you still have these same task force who are doing that same terrorism, assaulting people, overcriminalizing uh, the poor and black, na- the poor and um, low-income neighborhoods, mostly where black people live, because we are a majority black city. We want to make sure. All all of those are disbanded so that citizens can actually be safe. Increased scrutiny
1: of the Scorpion unit in Memphis has prompted reports from other residents stopped by the same unit. Days before Tyree Nichols was stopped, Cornell McKinney told WREG the same unit violently pulled him out of a car at a gas station where he was picking up a pizza and threatened to arrest him for drugs before saying they were just playing. He tried to file a formal complaint, but never heard back.
6: All I hear is, uh, freeze, get out the car, put your put your MF hands up before I blow your heads off. Both of you, get out the car. So put your hands up. So I put my hands up and one of the officers proceed to come to the car and uh, he physically pulled me out by my shoulder with a gun no more than a foot away from my head.
0: Cornell McKinney says he could get
1: no response to his complaints to police internal affairs over how he was stopped without reason. His story is now getting national attention after the dramatic video of Scorpion officers seeming to do the same thing to Tyree Nichols and going even further.
6: I was like, that's them. I said, that's crazy. That's them. I said, now they don't really hurt somebody. This could have been The Eternal Affairs took action like I was asking them to do.
1: Well, today we look more closely at these so called special police units that operate with little oversight. Here in New York City, protests led NYPD to shut down its street crimes unit after officers shot and killed Amadou Diallo February 4th, 1999, firing 41 bullets at him as he reached for his wallet outside of his apartment. Diallo was unarmed. The officers were acquitted of murder charges. Democracy Now! spoke with his mother, Katiadu Diallo, in 2014. When my son was gone down in his own vestibule, he was doing nothing wrong. And that night, uh, no one called 911 saying that any crime was being committed, has been committed that night. They just came with uh, their guns drawn. and. Uh, Uh, just executed my son. My family and the community at large call for changes. It seems to me that call has not been answered, because uh, we keep on seeing many victims of the same similar cases and even different cases. This comes as New York City Mayor Eric Adams, himself a former police officer, who has spoken out against police brutality and says he and his brother were beaten by police as teenagers, now says he plans to restart a controversial NYPD anti-crime unit that was broken up after protests over the police killing of George Floyd. The units will have a new name, Neighborhood Safety Teams. No matter what you call them, our guest Radley Balko writes in The New York Times, Tyree Nichols' death proves yet again that elite police units are a disaster. Radley Balco is an investigative reporter, author of Rise of the Warrior Crop, the Militarization of America's Police Forces, um, and of the criminal justice newsletter, The Watch. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Radley. Thanks for joining us from Nashville. Um, Let's start off with uh, what you are saying, that these elite police units are a disaster. Respond to what happened to Tyree Nichols in um, Memphis and how this— illustrates what's going on around the country.
5: Yeah. So what we saw in Memphis is, is a, a very familiar story, unfortunately. Um, what's happened probably for the last 40 to 50 years or so, going back to uh, the stress units in Detroit in the 1970s, is when crime goes up <clears throat> in a city, the police officials and civic leaders... Um, decide, you know, they need to show that they're doing something. And so, they'll start one of these elite units. And, you know, it rests on this false assumption that the best way to fight crime uh, in a city, particularly if crime is rising, is to... Give less oversight to police, to sort of give police more uh, room, more leeway to kind of knock heads, uh, to, to supervise them less. And, you know, this isn't true, uh, but it is a way for these officials to kind of show that, you know, they're, they're doing something or they're taking crime seriously. And so we, what we saw in Memphis was uh, in, 2000, in 2021 when uh, crime went up in Memphis, as it has all over the country, uh, pro- most likely due to the pandemic, uh, among other factors. Uh, they start this unit called the Scorpion in order to, uh, you know, again, to sort of demonstrate that they're really getting tough on crime. Um, The problem is, you know, not only is there no evidence or data showing that these units uh, effectively or even correlate with lower crime rates, um, they probably— uh, inhibit uh, the ability to fight crime effectively, because they undermine trust between the police and the communities that the police serve. Um, in order to fight crime effectively, you need to have cooperation uh, from the communities you're serving, particularly in high-crime areas. Um, and you need people to call the police when something's wrong. You need them to, to talk to you when you're investigating a serious crime. And there are polls showing now that uh particularly in African American communities uh people are more afraid of the police than they are of criminals, and that's just not a good way to you know to, to uh, promote public safety in these neighborhoods
3: well, I wanted to ask you in terms of that uh the uh, why are some of these units or or many of these units then prone to be especially violent uh uh the The intercept for instance reported that uh, uh that the uh, Special—the Street Crimes Unit and other special units like that in the New York City Police Department represented only 6 percent of the total officers, but were involved in more than 30 percent of fatal shootings. Uh, So so why do you see this tendency in these groups?
5: So I think what these units do is they concentrate some of the sort of more unfortunate or or problematic parts of policing into one unit. So because there's less supervision and there's sort of a longer leash for police to kind of skirt the rules, they attract officers who want to work in that kind of environment. Um, And then those officers, in turn, recruit other officers who are going to, uh, you know, who who share their sort of outlook on how policing ought to be done. I mean, when you call it a a police unit, something like Scorpion or Stress or um, uh, in— uh, you know, these, these sort of intimidating names, you know, not only do you—that that name is designed to intimidate or instill fear in the communities that the police serve, it's also designed to attract officers who want to be feared. Uh, and so that's how I think we get some of these units staffed with officers who, um, you know, in, in Chicago, for example, uh, their street—one of their street crimes units that uh, was disbanded finally in, I believe, 2011 after a huge scandal involving kidnapping, uh, drug dealing, you know, police officers beating people, planting evidence on people. Um, subsequent investigations found that, I believe it was four officers on that unit had more than 50 uh, citizen complaints against them, which put them in the very top 1 percent of the entire department—and that's a department with over 10,000 officers—to have you know, officers in the 1 percent of complaints uh, in the, that entire department in the same unit uh, tells you that that unit was you know designed to attract those kinds of officers.
3: You know, we've heard so much in in recent years about uh, police reform. We've seen in many in in several cities, uh, reform-minded police chiefs come uh, to power. But why do you think the police departments of the nation of this nation are so resistant uh, to uh, to systemic or or change? Uh, you talk about the barriers to that kind of change in a Uh, in a city like Little Rock, Arkansas, which elected its first black mayor in 2018 and sought to uh, bring in a reformist police chief. Uh, What are some of the barriers that these cities find?
5: So I think Little Rock is a good example of this problem. So in Little Rock in 2018, you had a mayor uh, who ran on a police reform platform uh, and won and became the first black mayor in Little Rock history. He then appoints a black police chief who uh, is a reform-oriented police chief. But, you know, that that Chief was barely in office, and the reforms he implemented to start were not particularly radical. In fact, they were they were good governance type reforms that other police departments across the country have had for decades. And there was immediate pushback from the police union and their supporters in the city um, to the point where the chief was sort of harassed. There were rumors spread about him, uh, a lot of sort of racially loaded rumors about you know harassing white women. Um, they went into his finances. Um, and none of these none of these a- allegations and accusations ever panned out. there's no evidence for for any of them, but he was harassed to the point where he eventually resigned and left the office and and the city police department's now led by an officer who's in the department for twenty years, not an outside officer more than twenty years I think, and who has the full support of the police union um so you know there are institutions in place i mean you, you policing is something that has evolved uh in this country since you know, 1920s, uh, even earlier in some cities, uh, there are institutions that have sprung up to keep things as the way they are, to sort of promote the status quo. And so, it becomes very difficult uh, to overcome those those interests. Um, you know, we are seeing some reform across the country. Uh, we're seeing the election of uh, kind of reform-oriented um, Uh, prosecutors, city council members, mayors, um, and particularly after the George Floyd protests, we have seen some really substantive changes on the state and local level. Um, You know, I think it's just a drop in the bucket uh, for what's actually needed. Uh, But I do think for the first time, and certainly since I've been covering this issue in about 20 years, um, we are, you know, seeing some movement in the direction of real substantive change.
1: I wanted to go to the issue of conspiracy, Radley. Um, The— Police officers, lawyers that are charged with murder are trying to separate each individual and saying, well, once they actually go to trial, you'll see he didn't exactly do this. And then you've got the one we have just learned, the white police officer who was suspended at the time that the others were fired and charged with murder, who you hear, um, uh, saying in the first stop he tased or tried to tase Tyree, um, uh, you know, stomp his A. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say the whole thing there. Um, But the idea of these units working together—and that's the argument um, that the prosecutors are uh, making—that unless they're actually actively stopping the assault, whatever role they play, they're all working to uh, move in on, and in this case, beat and ultimately kill Tyree.
5: Yeah, so, I mean, that's why, I think, after the George Floyd protests, you saw a lot of cities pass a duty-to-intervene law, which um, basically says that police officers see another officer violating someone's civil or constitutional rights, they have an obligation. Uh, to step in and try to stop that. Now, those laws are going to be really difficult to enforce, in part, again, because of the police unions. There is um, a—you know, there's the the blue coat of silence is is probably the most effective stop-snitching campaign in in U.S. history, right? It's really effective at getting police officers to uh, stop—to stopping police officers from testifying against each other, from turning each other in. Um, You know, in a lot of these cases—I mean, I've written about numerous cases over the years where— you have, you know, a scandal like this, where you have a police unit that was shown to have engaged in mass massive corruption, and the only officer who's ever sort of held accountable is the one who turned the other officers in, or who blew the whistle. Um, a good example is Adrian Schoolcraft in, uh, in New York, uh, the New York City Police Department a few years ago tried to blow the whistle on quotas, that, arrest quotas that the department had. And he was, not only was he harassed, he was eventually, uh, they raided his house and they forcibly interned him at a psychiatric ward because of course, you know, if you're <laughs> reporting on your fellow officer's misconduct, you can only be yeah, apparently having some sort of mental health crisis, uh, according to the NYPD uh, officer who who took that out. So I, I think there's a, a very strong sense of sort of um, camaraderie within poli- policing today. I think police culture has a very us versus them mentality, uh, and so it becomes very difficult to get you know even the, the the good officers to report and hold the bad officers accountable because you know a lot of those officers, if you do that, you're not going to remain in policing for very long.
3: Uh. I'm wondering, uh, I've covered a lot of these uh, incidents of police killings over many decades, and I was surprised, I'm wondering if you are as well, about how quickly uh, these officers were not only fired, but charged uh, for this killing. Uh, It usually takes months, sometimes years or more to get indictments of officers in, in police killings. And of course, many people are wondering whether this had something to do with the fact that there were there were five black officers involved uh, in in this particular uh, in this particular death. Uh, also, the issue of the fact that uh, Tyree Nichols was a FedEx worker uh, in a city that the headquarters of FedEx, where more than thirty thousand people, it's the largest employer uh, in Memphis. And I'm wondering your thoughts about how quickly. Uh, there was movement by law enforcement in this case.
5: Um, Well, those are are two very interesting theories um, that I actually hadn't considered. Um, You know, it was unusually fast uh, for one of these incidents, but I I think there are two other factors uh, at play, or three other factors at play. Um, One is, you know, I think— this is one of the substantive changes that I think we 've seen since George Floyd, even going back to Ferguson is we 've seen the prosecutors are more willing to be, to bring charges against police officers in the really egregious cases uh, Memphis also just elected a, a district attorney who ran heavily on a reform platform uh, so I think there was sort of political um, standing or political uh, support uh, for him to hold these officers accountable pretty much uh, immediately uh, but the other thing I think of player is that 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 video is just so incredibly harrowing and so incredibly horrifying. I mean, even, you know, people who routinely and reflexively defend law enforcement, people on the on the far right and the right, um, you know, even they aren't defending the police officers in this. Instead, they've sort of pivoted to this argument that those officers were, you know, uh, affirmative action hires or that this was some sort of example of wokism in police departments. But, you know, I think it's telling that they've turned to that. Um, they can't—you know, no one can watch that video And you know, not be just completely horrified at the utter lack of humanity shown by those officers, much less try to defend them. Uh, So I think both all those things played a big role in in the quick, uh, you know, uh, application of accountability in this case as well.
1: Well, we are going to, of course, continue to cover this case as well as others around the country. Uh, Tyree Nichols will be uh, buried tomorrow. The funeral is Wednesday in Memphis, Tennessee. Radley Balco, thanks so much for being with us. Investigative reporter, we'll link to your piece, Tyree Nichols' death, proves yet again that elite police units are a disaster. Author of the book Rise of the Warrior Cop, the militarization of America's police forces. Also, the editor of the criminal justice newsletter, The Watch, speaking to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Next up, we look at how a special unit designed to protect trans women at Rikers Island Jail here in New York. York has fallen apart, stranding many trans women in male jails where they have been harassed and raped. Stay with us. by salt. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González. We look now at a new investigation into the collapse of the LGBTQ unit at the massive Rikers Island Jail here in New York City that was designed to help protect trans women held there, stranding many in male jails where they've been harassed and raped. This comes as trans women across the country are routinely jailed in male facilities and are many times more likely to be sexually assaulted than other incarcerated people. The change at Rikers came after New York City's Mayor Eric Adams installed a new jails commissioner who pushed out top department leaders who were supportive of the unit and shelved a draft policy directive aimed at getting more trans and gender non-conforming detainees into gender-aligned housing. Last week, the new Department of Correction commissioner, Louis Molina, testified before the New York City Council about staffing at the LGBTQI Initiative Unit at Rikers Island. He was questioned by New York City Councilmember Carlina Rivera.
4: The DOC
3: LGBTQI Initiatives Unit has lost three of four employees in the past year. What is the total number of staff at present? For that particular unit, we have one executive director that is still on staff. Um, We have vacancies in that unit, um, as well as we have vacancies in a number of business units within the department. Our challenges with attrition across the board for both uniform and non-uniform staff is not unique to the New York City Department of Corrections. Um, And people in 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 a professional job move on to do other things. So right now, there's currently one staff member, the director. We have one executive director...
1: For more, we're joined by George Joseph, senior reporter at The City, focusing on criminal justice and courts. His new investigation is headlined, Under Eric Adams, a Rikers Island unit that protected trans women has collapsed. Also with us, Robin Robinson, a former services coordinator with the LGBTQ plus unit at Rikers Island jail complex, who quit in protest this past June. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin with George Joseph.
4: Lay out what you found. So in the years before Eric Adams came into office in New York City, New York's York's administration in the jails had tried to take incremental steps to protect trans women. Um, It it created this unit which had done unique programming for the LGBTQ community. That unit eventually got more and more authority in the department. So it had more um, decision-making power in terms of where uh, vulnerable LGBTQ um, detainees were kept, especially trans women, who have the great one of the greatest risks for sexual harm in the jail system. Um, and it was on the verge of winning a new policy directive that would have helped create more gender-aligned housing spaces for trans women across Rikers Island, so that they could get into safer um, day-to-day living conditions without being harassed and sexually violated. You know, within months of Eric Adams appointing his new jails commissioner, almost all of that those progressive steps were reversed. The unit that we were referring to collapsed. It now it just has one staff member. Um, and all that programming, all that authority it had in the department has more or less vanished, according to sources in the jails that we spoke to as part of this investigation.
3: Oh the issue of uh, trans women being routinely jailed in male facilities, are are there many more times likely to be sexually assaulted than other incarcerated people? What are the other forms of abuse faced by trans people at Rikers?
4: So as part of this investigation, we spoke to at least four trans women who are currently in male housing jails at Rikers Island. And All of them said that just on a day-to-day level, from both guards and um, other incarcerated people, they face sexual harassment, they face transphobia, they're often called derogatory names like MOOC and other sort of anti-LGBTQ terms. Um, Oftentimes, they are pressured into doing sexual acts, which they don't want to do. Um, And in addition to full-on sexual assaults, there's all sorts of inappropriate touching and just violence that's enacted onto them. Um, And this is very well known both in the New York City jail system and in jails and prisons across the country.
3: you tell us about uh, Tamara Harrison, one of the uh, trans women uh, that you dealt with in your story?
4: Yes, Tamara Harrison is someone who came to Rikers Island late in 2022 um, for the part of the story that we reported on uh, for her. She was immediately placed in a male jail and reported to corrections authorities that she had been groped repeatedly by another incarcerated person. Despite that report, they continued to keep her in male jails, and out of desperation, she ended up taking a razor blade and cutting both of her arms, her right and her left arm. Even after both of those acts of self-harm, um, she, the corrections. Um, authorities were unwilling to move her to a female housing unit. Um, She went to the LGBTQ unit, which at this point only had one employee and next to no say in housing decisions. And though the unit tried to get her moved to a medical facility where she had been requesting um, a transfer, she was basically unable to get moved out of the same male housing unit, After learning about the unit's failure, she swallowed batteries, um, forcing her to go to the hospital. Even then, the Department of Correction did not move her to another facility that she wanted. Um, By this point, she was asking to go to Rosie's, which is the woman's jail on Rikers Island. Several weeks later, she cuts her arm for a third time, requiring serious stitches. And only after that did the Department of Correction finally move her to Rose M. Singer, the woman's jail, where she now reports feeling much safer and just sort of being able to live day to day without harassment.
1: I wanted to bring Robin Robinson into the conversation. Robin, you resigned from Riker's LGBTQ plus unit this past June in protest of the conditions faced by people jailed there and the unit's rapid deterioration. Can you describe what you saw while working there and what your job was that pushed you ultimately to quit and speak out about what, was happening. You began working there in 2021?
6: Yes, that is correct. I started um, in 2021. Um, and what I saw there, um, from what tra- many trans women and gender nonconforming has told me, they were called names by staff members, by other people in custody. They were called derogatory names. Um, we had one particular trans man who was pretty much scared out of wanting to go into one of the housing units that housed um, other trans men, transgender women um, by staff members. Um, He stated that um, the correctional officers said to not go into that unit because um, those trans women are just men and you're going to be raped. Um, There were many instances where, um, again, a lot of— trans uh, women are being harassed in the male facilities. And when trying to ask for help, um, they're not believed by the correction officers. Um, there was a situation where a trans woman was physically assaulted and burned with hot water and suffered third-degree burns, um, and nothing was done about the situation at all. There was supposed to be an investigation, and then everything just went dead. Um, at the point where I was getting tired of being in this space was when I was on a call um, to advocate for someone to go into safer housing, gender-aligned housing. Um, this trans woman was in a male facility and was raped twice. And when trying to advocate on the phone call, um, staff members disagreed with me in trying to get this person into the female facility. Um, they labeled the trans woman as aggressive and were more concerned that she would try to have sex with um, the other women. Um, there's this hyper fixation on trans women's bodies, particularly like what's in be- what's in between their legs. And a lot of times when a trans woman is denied gender-aligned housing at the female facility, it is because of this idea that these trans women are really just men who want to prey on women or want to have sex with the women. Um, So I decided, like, I cannot no longer be working in a space that causes so much harm to the trans people on Rikers. Um, And I I didn't want to be complicit in that harm. And as a black non-binary Trans person, myself, I saw myself a lot in these individuals. We have a lot in common um, as far as our experiences as trans people. Um, So I saw myself in these people, and it was a hard choice. I feel guilty for leaving, but I also knew it was the right decision because I could not be in a space where I'm constantly witnessing people being abused verbally, sexually assaulted, and— no one is doing nothing about it.
1: Like the in, case uh, of Leyline r- Polanco, I just wanted to go to that for a minute. Uh, this is Melania Brown reading from an op-ed she wrote for NBC News about her sister Leilene, who was a 27-year-old trans woman, died in solitary confinement in Rikers in
0: 2019. My sister Polanco died last year at the notorious Rikers Island prison. While in detention, she suffered an epileptic seizure and died alone in solitary confinement. She was only 27 years old, nowhere close to getting to fully live her life. The system killed her, like it killed so many black people and other people of color. To be clear, My sister's death was preventable. The New York City Department of Correction knew about her medical condition, and yet, as a new report revealed, pushed to place her in solitary confinement over objections of medical staff members. They pushed her into solitary in part because they didn't know how to house a transgender woman in Rikers. As
1: hundreds of people protested the death of Laline Polenko, the trans woman who died in solitary confinement at Rikers, the Department of Correction announced the launch of what was then known as the LGBTQ Plus Initiatives Unit. If—George, if if you could tell us, finally, more about her case and how now the whole thing is unraveling, and then Juan.
4: Yes. um, So Leylaine Polanco had been in solitary confinement and, according to her family, had um, a seizure, which helped result in her death. um, And that spurred a larger movement led by her family to end solitary confinement in New York City jails. Um, Towards the tail end of the de Blasio administration, our former mayor here in New York City Um, there were some limits put on solitary confinement, limiting the amount of hours that someone could be kept in a cell in what they call punitive segregation by themselves. That measure didn't go as far as the Polanco family wanted in terms of totally getting rid of solitary confinement, but it was a restriction. Two weeks before Mayor Eric Adams um, took office officially, he um, held a press conference where he introduced his new jails commissioner, and he announced himself that he was going to get rid of those restrictions on solitary confinement. That was seen as a major win for the corrections officers unions here in New York City, which had been pushing for years against any changes to the solitary confinement policy. And as one of his first acts before he even went into office, he rolled back those protections.
3: Robin Robinson, I wanted to ask you, uh, the in terms of the, the, the power of the Corrections Union to have an impact on uh, city jail policy, whether it was under de Blasio or uh, uh, Mayor Eric Adams, what's your sense of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the ability of the Corrections Union to determine what happens uh, at Rikers and, and other city jail facilities?
6: Um, from my understanding, um, in terms of like, excuse me, for uh, punitive segregation or housing in general, um, a decision is usually made based on um, phone calls that they're hearing, um, maybe Gen Tech footage as well, to, um, and also going uh, to the individuals, speaking with them knowing what's going on in that situation, and that's usually how um, situations—trans um, people or people in general are either put into punitive segregation or moved to different housing units. And finally— I your and question. What, and,
3: and what was your experience in terms of uh, Commissioner Molina's, uh, once he came into office, how things changed in terms of uh, the jail system or uh, Rikers dealing with trans people?
6: Um, when the Adams administration came in, it felt like a lot of things that were moving forward were now going backwards. It felt like we were going backwards. Um, we didn't have much of a say-so as we used to have um, in the LGBTQ affairs unit. Um, eventually, it got to a point where um, staff like just refused... LGBTQ staff refused to be on the the housing calls, um, because nothing we said um, held any merit, um, even when trying to push for the new LGBTQ policy that would help support um, trans people and LGBTQ people on Rikers. That was stalled, and myself and my other colleagues just felt powerless, because— there was nothing we can do um, to try to push it forward. It felt like we had no say-so in anything anymore. I've tried asking my supervisor, like, what's going on with the directive. Um, like, is it going to move forward? And oftentimes it was just, oh, we have to wait and see. There was a lot of steps. Um, but it was really overall just exhausting. Um Because everything that we had worked so hard for, it felt like it was for nothing.
1: Robin Robinson, we want to thank you for speaking out. Former services coordinator with the LGBTQ plus unit at Rikers Island Jail quit in protest in June. And George Joseph of the City will link to your new investigation under Eric Adams, a Rikers Island unit that protected trans women has collapsed. Next up, we speak with the economist Richard Wolf about the debt ceiling and the economics of the Ukraine war. Back in 20 seconds. Bye. Find the Cost of Freedom by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden are preparing for their first face-to-face meeting Wednesday to discuss raising the debt ceiling. The U.S. technically hit the debt ceiling earlier this month, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has taken extraordinary measures to keep paying the government's bills. House Republicans are pushing for major spending cuts as part of any deal to raise the more than $31 trillion borrowing limit. To talk more about this and the economy of the uh, Ukraine war, we're joined by Richard Wolf, professor of economics emeritus, University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a visiting professor at New School University, the founder of Democracy at Work, hosts a weekly national TV and radio program called Economic Update. Um, so, Richard Wolf, if you can talk about the debt ceiling— what's happening right now, um, and what you feel is most important to understand about it.
2: The debt ceiling is a decision made by the Congress of the United States to limit themselves. And let me explain. In our federal budget in the government, in order to spend money on the Defense Department, the war in Ukraine, Social Security, and all the rest, the government basically relies on taxes— But therein lies a problem in our economic system, because the corporations and the rich on the one hand and the rest of us on the other want the government to provide services, but we don't want to pay taxes. And the politicians we elect are caught in that dilemma. Uh, They don't want to lose votes by taxing the rest of us beyond what they've already done. And they don't want to lose donations and all the rest of it from corporations and the rich by taxing them. And they found a solution because they don't have much political courage, namely to borrow the money. In that way, they can pay for the spending without taxing uh, anybody, and they can parade around as if this is an act of efficiency rather than an act of no courage to do what they know could be done, raise the taxes or cut the spending, and then we wouldn't have to borrow. They've been borrowing so much. Let me give you an example. In 1982, uh, the debt of this country and the GDP, our output, were roughly the same. Today, our output is $21, 22000000000000 but our national debt is $32 trillion. That is, over all these years, when we've had a sequence of debt ceilings, a rule that you can't borrow more, After the theater of the president and the head of Congress getting together, they extend the debt, they raise the debt again, the ceiling is uh, eliminated or postponed or reset at a higher level, and so the debts keep going. It's 99% theatrics. Mr. McCarthy can say, I'm against taxes, which his base likes, and the Democrats can say, well, we don't want to savage the spending the country needs, which is what their base wants. They go back and forth. It gets dicey. We have late night press conferences, and then we raise the ceiling,
3: which is literally kicking the the problem down the road. But Richard, Richard Wolf, it's not just a question of of not wanting to raise taxes, but under various uh, Republican presidents and in, in Congress, is the actual cutting of taxes? Wasn't was the didn't the Bush tax cuts and then the Trump tax cuts have an um, important effect on the growth of the debt? Absolutely, the the debt grows again
2: if you cut taxes. Obviously. Uh, and you don't cut spending, you're going to have to borrow the difference. Or, if you like, if you don't mess with the taxes, but you spend more, then you're going to have a bigger debt problem. What we've had is a series of actions in which the euphoria of the moment gets a vote in the Congress without anyone thinking, speaking publicly about the impact. I'll give you two examples. The one you appoint to, the tax cut of Mr. Trump, still one of the greatest tax cuts in American history uh, in December of 2017. It was a savage reduction in how much uh, taxes the government could get. And therefore, of course, it expanded how much you'd have to borrow to replace that debt. Here's one on the other side. If you suddenly, over the year 2022, expand by a hundred plus billion dollars the spending plan for Ukraine, well then of course, uh, for the war there I mean, uh, of course you're going to therefore get yourself again in an imbalance between the money coming in through taxes and what you're spending. There is another dimension to this that people are afraid to talk about, but needs to be talked about. If the government borrows instead of taxing, this is really good news for corporations and the rich, particularly. And here's why. If they can succeed in cutting their taxes, as they did under Mr. Trump, for example, then the government has to borrow. You know who the government borrows from? Them it borrows mostly from corporations and the rich. The average people of America do not lend to the government because they don't have the money. So the irony is there's an imbalance for corporations and the rich. They can get out of the taxes they might have to pay. And instead, the government comes to them and borrows from them the money they otherwise would have had to pay in taxes. They have to pay that money back to those people, plus interest for the time that they hold this debt. So you can see that when corporate America pushes for tax cuts, it's looking at two benefits. It doesn't have to pay taxes, and instead, it gets to have a loan to the government. The choice between those two is kind of obvious.
3: And the, the and link between this increased uh, uh, spending, especially for adventures like the Ukraine War and the inflation uh, that many Americans are, uh, are um, all Americans are confronting today. Well, the the biggest
2: thing, which is for some of us economists, kind of amazing to watch, Uh, over the last uh, year, we've been told that the government, the Federal Reserve, has to raise interest rates. And the logic of hurting all the people whose credit card bills, whose college payment bills, and whose car payments are all going up as interest rates rise, we're told this is necessary because if interest rates rise, it becomes more expensive to borrow, and therefore people will do less of that, and they'll have less to spend. And with less to spend, we will be slowing our inflation. At the same time, the government is spending tens of billions of dollars on a new program, namely the war in Ukraine, which has exactly the opposite effect. But the rules of our politics seem to mean we have to talk about Ukraine only in terms that are carefully cleansed from the inflationary impact such a plan has. It's a kind of split consciousness that goes together with the theatrics of Biden and uh, McCarthy because they're not facing the hard realities. They're kind of dancing around them more to distract us.
1: And finally, Richard Wolff, if you can talk about the just-concluded strike at your own school, at New School University um, and Parsons, tell us about it and whether you supported it.
2: I supported it. If it was more than 100 percent, I would say more than 100 percent. Yes, I'm proud. I'm happy that we were part of a a strike wave across this country. It's the American working class waking up, realizing what's been done to it for the last 40 years, which includes inflation, rising interest rates, several collapses of our economy, the worst one in 2008 and nine. We've been suffering as the employee majority of the United States, and now there's the beginning of the realization that getting together at the workplace, to have a union, to fight, to strike if necessary, these are traditions that the American working class has the right to be proud of in the past, and even more the right to begin to exercise again now. So I'm very happy to be part of that process.
1: Richard Wolff, want to thank you for being with us. Professor of Economics Emeritus, University of Massachusetts Amherst, visiting professor at the Graduate Program in International Affairs at the New School University, host of the weekly program Economic Update. And uh, we'll link to your writings and work. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Thanks for joining us.